Children's Hospital is no longer the prison asylum of yesterday. It's a city where the sick can become well again. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Decrypting Crypto podcast, a CastBox original show. I'm Matthew House Barbie, and as usual, joined by my co-host, Austin Knight. Hey, Matt, how are things going with you? Things are good, generally speaking. Probably a lot less stressful than the Bitcoin core developers over the past couple of weeks. Yeah, I, I can imagine. That is, uh, that's perhaps a bit of an understatement, actually. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and for, for everyone listening here that, that isn't aware of what's been going on over the past couple of weeks, a critical bug was discovered in Bitcoin's code. And we'll, we'll be discussing this in a little bit more detail shortly. Yeah, and alongside that, we're still going to have our main feature discussion. So this week, Matt and I are going to be talking about the applications of blockchain technology within the healthcare industry. Super interesting space. Yeah, we've. I think we've we've talked a little bit about that in the past, uh, especially in series one, but we never went deep into it. But over the past few episodes, we've kind of dedicated our main feature where we were talking initially around how cryptocurrencies rise and fall in value. We had a lot of questions about that in particular via email. So hopefully we did a good job of answering some of your questions there. And then we did our deep dive into the SIA project, which the SIA team and a bunch of the community shared out. And we've had some really nice feedback on that, which was interesting. I think we're definitely going to do more project deep dives as a result. And then last week, we did our retrospective on ICOs, which was pretty good fun and shone a bit of a light into ICOs to date. That said, we do have a lot of questions that come in asking how blockchain can be used in this specific industry or that industry. So we did want to cover that in more detail. Healthcare was one that keeps coming up. If you like this, we will do more episodes and cover a bunch of different industries, maybe one that you're particularly passionate about learning more in. Yeah, there are a lot of interesting practical applications of this technology that are popping up all over the place right now. And I think, it, as you mentioned, Matt, we did an episode way back in series one. What I, I believe it was one of the first few episodes where we talked about the wider applications of blockchain technology, but we didn't go into a huge amount of detail on one industry. So this will be a pretty cool opportunity for us to do that. Yeah. And I think since then as well, right, we, we've actually spoke to a, a bunch more people in the blockchain space, some of those being in the healthcare industry, some not. And we've actually, during that episode in way back when in series one, if you haven't listened to series one yet and you're coming in relatively fresh and new into the podcast, I mean, bias opinion, I would highly recommend you go check it out. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, we, we've been talking to some of those companies that have been tackling different kind of problems, especially the ones that we mentioned back in series one. But even since then, there has been a ton of new companies that have appeared. And honestly, based on some of the conversations we've had recently, I wouldn't be surprised if some of those companies that we'd mentioned back in series one have actually 
completely disappeared now. Yeah, just thinking about that crazy ICO failure rate data that we were talking about <laughs> in last episode, it would seem very likely that that's the case. <laughs> yes, it would. I think something like 900 out of the, what is it, the 5,000 projects that exist right now are all dead. So yes, probably pretty likely. But... <laughs> Before we go into all of that and the joys of dead projects, why don't we chat a bit about another morbid topic? The the recent news surfaced about the bug that was found in Bitcoin's code. Bitcoin in particular, something that a lot of people have said is unhackable, irrefutable, <laughs> irremutable, and also has no problems to date. And, and I think this is something that's Maybe shone a light on this, not to say that it's hackable now, but certainly there was a big vulnerability that was was highlighted here, Austin, right? Yeah, it's been pretty crazy. There was recently an official CVE report, so CVE standing for Common Vulnerabilities and Exposures, which showed that an attacker could have easily used a vulnerability to create a new Bitcoin, which would be like above the 21 million hard cap of coin creation, thereby inflating the supply and devaluing current Bitcoins. It's pretty insane. Yeah, I mean, the the extent of the, the implication right there, right? Like that is a, a huge, huge vulnerability. And I think there was, so I was reading actually a report from the Bitcoin core developers themselves. And uh, I, I pulled out, a quote here and and this kind of really shows how urgent this is when there are often for for those of you listening right there are regular updates to bitcoin's core software and actually most other blockchain projects where they're improving on features that aren't that great adding new features but within this one it says and i quote In order to encourage rapid upgrades, the decision was made to immediately patch and disclose the less serious denial-of-service vulnerability, concurrently with reaching out to miners, businesses, and other affected systems, while delaying publication of the full issue to give time for users to upgrade. So there's been a lot of kind of news in particular around actually the the non-disclosure of the extent of the bug that had come out. I saw articles uh, within, I think it was Coindesk, and they were kind of talking about like basically how big an issue this was, the fact that the core team hadn't even disclosed a lot of this, right? Yeah. With that said, uh, you can all breathe a sigh of relief because over half of Bitcoin's mining hash rate has been upgraded to the patched software version, meaning that the attack can no longer be used and developers are unaware of any attempts to exploit this vulnerability, according to the report. So it seems like everything is going to be okay and that the patch itself has worked, at least so far. (laughs) So far, so far. (laughs) Yeah, I I actually read an interesting Twitter thread because I was kind of going down a bit of a black hole with, with this. And so this vulnerability has existed since the dawn of Bitcoin, right? And there was an interesting discussion and I apologize because I cannot remember who the discussion was around. So I'm I'm using your knowledge, but not 
citing you, I'm afraid. Uh, but the the discussion was around, well, has someone just slyly exploited this already? And mm-hmm. is there Bitcoins that are in circulation right now above the, the, the hard cap of 21 million that really would ultimately deflate the existing value of all the current Bitcoins? And there are a few people concerned around this, but actually... There was something that kind of came out in in the sense that the long and short of the answer, which it seemed like there was general consensus agreeing that this is the case, is that because of the fact that we have a complete history, especially everyone running a node of like all transactions, everything that's gone on the blockchain, it would be relatively easy to spot if someone had exploited this already. And multiple people that have been running nodes for a long time in particular have confirmed that it's pretty much close to being confirmed that there's there's no attempts that have been made to exploit or successful attempts at least yeah had it been exploited though it kind of would have brought into question the legitimacy of bitcoin as a whole and compromised much of what it's touted as like its core value proposition the very security of this technology yeah i i really do not know what would have happened if <laughs> this had been exploited. I mean, as well, the the gravity of this cannot be understated. I think that if we'd have seen a major bug like this, like this is not an overstatement to say it could have brought down Bitcoin, right? Like this is this is the extent of the exploit here. And if something significant happens here, it it completely would have swayed the confidence of investors, of people using Bitcoin. It, the, the argument around it being virtually unhackable basically is gone. But not only yeah. that, it's not like this has just happened to some shitty like altcoin project that's nothing and almost a scam and then it was all messed up. This is like, this is the granddaddy of, of, of blockchain, <laughs> right? Like if, if Bitcoin has a vulnerability... I mean, where where can you have faith that any of the other projects uh, don't have like similar vulnerabilities, right? Like that's a that's a huge yeah. issue. And along those lines, there are, as we've mentioned in the past, other coins that were forked off of Bitcoin's code, and they have since had to release patches for this vulnerability mm-hmm. as well. That includes yeah. Litecoin, so very large and well-known cryptocurrencies yeah i think uh we were we were chatting a bit before we recorded this episode actually and uh, i think charlie lee the the founder of litecoin came out and said he wasn't concerned that they've released a patch however so litecoin to one side and a few other of the bigger projects that either forked off of bitcoin or used bitcoin's course software as a starting point that they're all going to have the same exploit in them until they patch it but there are still a ton of projects especially smaller projects out there right now that are yet to release patches that is very worrying and i mean i have no idea why those projects would not have released a patch yet It, it baffles me especially considering the the coverage that this bug has had so far yeah it's scary it certainly is. I think that the big thing that I've started to see in particular from this is there's been a bit of a shift in sentiment, especially on Twitter. I mean, 
if you want to go to somewhere to find a shift in sentiment, you can just scroll through Twitter. <laughs> but so I don't know if the, the validity of that statement truly holds. But certainly one of the themes that I've seen is, is continue to come out has been like the core developers need to be a lot more ruthless in their analysis of Bitcoin's code. We're way past the days of like this being a group of underpaid volunteers that are basically like helping get this fledgling little project up and running, right? Like a lot of the Bitcoin core developers are making really good money from this. And whilst they do a lot of this from the early days out of the goodness of their heart, they they have a, a responsibility to really have a, a truly critical look and a deeper look into the underlying code behind Bitcoin and make sure that they protect what is now a huge project beyond to call bitcoin a project is almost like a strange thing now it's just it's such a bigger entity than that so yeah scary stuff but hopefully this puts more eyeballs on bitcoin's code and we'll be able to stay ahead of future situations like this i'm certain this probably isn't the last we'll hear of either this or things in the future right yeah one other interesting story that came up last week was a somewhat unexpected flippening, which for those of you uh, who are one, I, the terms. <laughs> um, not to be not to be mistaken by the fappening, which is a very different <laughs> situation. <laughs> yeah. So for those of you who are wondering what a flippening is, uh, it's a term that's previously been used to describe what, like the future potential scenario of Ethereum overtaking Bitcoin as the number one cryptocurrency by market cap. Of course, it hasn't done this yet, but for the first time since January, XRP, the cryptocurrency that is primarily owned and controlled by Ripple, actually overtook Ethereum to become the second largest cryptocurrency by market cap. Yeah, this this kind of took a lot of people by surprise, myself included. I remember literally waking up, I think it was like on the Monday morning or something, and uh, I was just running through some of the, the price charts because it was when we send out our weekly newsletter and we give like a very brief look at like the top five cryptocurrencies by market cap and just show their weekly gains. And I was like, wait, I think some of the data is wrong here. It's showing like a 50% increase in XRP's price. Everything else was relatively normal. What's going on? But actually, that's what happened. So XRP increased by over 50% in a single 24-hour period. It peaked on September 21st at around 77 cent per XRP. It has since dropped back down to the number three spot. But with the kind of landslide that Ethereum has been on over the past few months, this has kind of came out. And a, a lot of people were kind of questioning, and I, I think both me and yourself, Austin, are still not quite sure of the reason why this has happened. But there have been a few theories behind some of this, right? Yeah, so first, Ripple, the parent company of XRP reached an agreement in its lawsuit with R3, which is the blockchain consortium group, mm. uh, which has stretched out over the past year, resulting in them selling up to 5 billion XRP by the end of next year. 
Yeah, this seems to be like a. I mean, that's been a massive news story for a long time. That's been hanging over Ripple's head uh, with R three, yeah. and I think this agreement has widely been seen, which I think happened maybe a week before, or maybe a yeah. I think it was like the thirteenth of September. I want to say I could be wrong there, but that was agreed upon. But I think that's like a real win in the eyes yeah. of the, the the company Ripple. Yeah, just clearing that up alone. Plus, on top of that, Ripple mentioned that they are launching their new X Rapid product in a month. So that will dramatically increase transaction speeds for banks. So that's another thing that's happening. Yeah, I saw it was like a Forbes article, Forbes or CNBC, something like that. And one of the Ripple execs, I want to say the COO potentially of Ripple, they were coming out and they basically said, yeah, the reason why Ripple has rose in price is because everyone's excited about our new product launch. It's like, well, I'm sure you would say that, but uh, we'll, we'll, <laughs> we'll see if that's the case. Uh, I'm sure the product team at Ripple are really happy <laughs> and they're all quoting their, their major success before even launching this product. But I was having a little look into it and I mean, I don't necessarily hold a huge opinion on Ripple. It's probably the most divisive blockchain project in the the entire of the space right now. But certainly the stats that they're quoting that their X-Rapid product will do in terms of transaction speeds, it seems like it's a massive improvement. Ripple are known for making announcements and partnerships with a bunch of banks. They have done that to a certain extent. The extent of those partnerships is up for debate, but yeah, maybe a combination of a few of these things. It, it feels to me like XRP is just a little bit too big to just see like a random out of the blue pump like this. But again, I could be wrong there and that could just be what it is, but time will tell. So Ripple and XRP's rise to one side the Bitcoin bug to one side. Shall we jump into today's main feature? Sure. Today, we're going to be taking a look into the healthcare industry to see how and if blockchain technology could be used to improve it. Okay, so we've talked a bit about healthcare as one of those industries that's probably ripe for I want to I don't want to necessarily say disruption here. I don't think it's necessarily the right terminology, but let's just say improvement. <laughs> <laughs> but but there there are to just look at why there is potentially some improvement needed. And I think globally the healthcare industry varies in its levels of output and quality uh, in, in general, but to take a quick look at the US here, we we've pulled together a few a few stats that are backed up from credible sources, Austin, right? Yeah. So in the U.S., surprisingly, a newly born baby today can expect to live two years less than a newborn in almost any other OECD country. So you could imagine that as just being a country that has been acknowledged as having a, a fairly well-established healthcare system with a well-established economy. Americans with chronic diseases like asthma end up in the hospital more frequently despite a 100% increase in healthcare spending since the turn of the millennium. That's that's crazy. Yeah. 
And one of the biggest challenges in the U.S. for residents is the huge cost of pharmaceutical drugs compared to almost any other country in the world. So not only does this drive up the total cost of the healthcare system, but it also lowers the quality of care across key areas. Of course, this can become a majorly contentious topic in terms of the solutions that could be applied to these problems. But what's not so contentious is that the problem exists. And these problems are, as Matt mentioned, in many ways ripe to being solved by technology and perhaps blockchain technology. And there's a lot of interesting stuff that's happening exactly in that area. Yeah, uh, there, there is a lot of projects that are trying to tackle this. I mean, let's make no mistake from a commercial point of view, the in particular, the US healthcare system is an absolute cash cow. That said, there is a running joke within uh, certainly the med tech, that's the healthcare software space that it's where so many great startups go to die because uh, it's incredibly <laughs> competitive. I, I do think, though, certainly from someone myself who has grown up in a very, very different environment to the US from a healthcare perspective. For all our listeners, if you didn't gather already, I am British uh, and not American. And when I was growing up, I had the wonders of our UK National Healthcare Service. Everything, by and large, was for free in my eyes. We have guaranteed healthcare. We have our prescriptions all the way up to when you're 18 years old. It doesn't matter what prescription you have. It's completely covered by the government. And even after that, the prescription costs are minimal. I mean, when myself and my wife go back to the UK, which is pretty frequently, like I will just stock up on just random painkillers, stuff like that, because literally you will go in and it's the equivalent of paying like 30 cents for like paracetamol, which is like Advil, right? And I'll come back to the US and it's like five bucks for the same pack. It's just, it's, it's insane. And obviously... Not to get too deep into this, but when you start getting more expensive prescription drugs and healthcare that's needed and the insurance costs on top of that, it makes sense to me that there is just so much here that outside of the companies selling these drugs, there are just just inadequate processes that add huge expenses in the supply chain that contribute to parts of this as well, right? Oh, absolutely. And Matt, as you mentioned, like part of the reason why so many startups go to this place to die is because of competition, but also because of the massive bureaucracy Mm. built around this, which hopefully blockchain tech or tech in general could help to trim down as much as possible. We've recognized that there are several key issues, or at least groups of issues, Mm. that are being discussed right now and that different blockchain projects are poking at. Beyond pharmaceuticals, which is a gigantic problem that that we'll dive into here. Viagra on the blockchain, is that what we're saying? (laughs) (laughs) That will be the first one. (laughs) Prices on the up, some may say. (laughs) that was i could hear that 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 was a pity laugh wasn't it austin you just you did that for the listener not me (laughs) we're all laughing together here (laughs) sort of tangentially from pharmaceuticals though 
something that gets discussed a lot as a major issue in the U.S. and outside of the U.S. is reducing costs and waiting times with a shared database of medical records. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one of the biggest pieces. And to, and just to give to to kind of get a general feel right for how fragmented the U.S. healthcare system is. The the city of Boston is a wonderful starting point. I'm based in Boston right now, Boston, Massachusetts, and there's 4.5 million residents in Boston. Boston has 26 different electronic medical record systems in use today. Every single one of those medical record systems has its own language for representing and sharing data. This means like critical information, and and just to clarify as well, these different medical record systems don't play well with one another. And it means like really important information is scattered across multiple facilities. It sometimes isn't accessible, especially when it's needed most, which is actually a situation that plays out every single day in the US. And as a result, right, this doesn't just cause a cost in money, but actually can cost lives and is proven to do that. Yeah. So the idea here is that a blockchain could potentially be used to create a sort of universal database that records all of a patient's medical history. And then this could be recorded each time you visit the doctor, pick up a prescription, have simple info like your blood type, allergies, etc. Uh, So not only would this be able to be shared with anyone that you needed to share it with, but it could possibly also be owned by the patient, which I think is a super compelling aspect of this. 100%. So imagine a hypothetical scenario that Matt and I have (laughs) both had to go through a couple times by now. And unfortunately, non-hypothetical for us. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it has unfortunately become very non-hypothetical and very real and painful, uh, which is that say you're moving from one country to another and you have to bring your medical records with you. Well, first, you're going to need to get those medical records released from your local doctor and then go through the process of supplying those records to your new doctor in the new place that you're moving to. And of course, there are tons of complications that can happen throughout this process along the way, especially if you're moving to a place with a very different healthcare system, different language, whatever. They're not going to have this stuff if you don't supply it to them. It is an absolute nightmare. I I just, I remember (laughs) going through this. I moved from England to Ireland. That was what I would kind of put on the scale of like semi-painful. And when I moved to the US, it was like horrendously painful. And one of the reasons behind that was like, I remember when I was like first getting my medical and you kind of take some of this for granted, right? Like you think, well, I've had all these vaccinations when I was a baby, when I was growing up as a teenager and as an adult, I've had like all these things like I had asthma when I was young and like I've had these operations or I have these allergies, etc. I I would I just assume before I moved to a new country, if I go to another country, there'll be some way that they can gather this information, right? Like imagine I'm on a hospital bed and I have like an allergy to penicillin, right? Like surely that's just all stored somewhere. It isn't. 
It's insane. (laughs) I cannot believe it. I had to, not only did I have to have, (laughs) I remember uh, when I first had like my medical, I had to get like seven different vaccinations, basically every single vaccination that I'd already had when I was like a baby growing up, etc. because the US didn't have those records. Then I had to fly back to the UK to pick up a piece of paper that was signed by my local doctor that just had some very, what seemed like very basic information on it, that I then had to fly back to the US to hand this paper, because it could only be picked up in person and released in person, to then share this information. It was the most nonsensical thing I think I've ever been through. It, It was horrendous. Yeah. So when we talk about the bureaucracy of the healthcare system, (laughs) these experiences, these scarring experiences are what come to mind. (laughs) Yeah, they they really are. And and there are actually, there are a lot of blockchain projects kind of sparking up right now that are trying to solve parts of this. Interestingly, there are, and I think this is because the sensitivity of some of this data. A lot of these seem to be more private blockchains versus a public blockchain, which is something like Bitcoin, etc. A private blockchain would be still ultimately a centralized entity owning all of the data, but leveraging blockchain technology. One of those is a project by Intel and PocketDoc called DocChain. And This project is is interesting. Like, we're not going to go into tons of detail around each of these projects, but you should go check them out if you're interested. They're kind of focused around creating a blockchain that's designated to record the history of a patient's medical care. So this is then all cryptographically secured. It's used for identity verification, medical referrals, eligibility checks. You can imagine this being used for borderless information sharing. But... In the U.S. alone, like even just state by state, this is a major issue. Yeah, it's almost like going to another country, Austin. Right? Yeah, it, it sure can be. There's another prototype system called MedRec. It's being developed by MIT Media Lab, and this is interesting. It uses a private blockchain based on Ethereum. Mm. So this prototype uses its own private blockchain to store medical records while using smart contracts to give and rescind rescind permissions <laughs> for doctors to edit patients' medical records. Yeah, it seems like MIT, like whenever we talk about any project in any industry, MIT Media Lab are always doing something. Yeah. I've actually been to a bunch of events like that they host for free. I think they do like, if you if actually any of our listeners are in the Boston area and are wanting to just go learn some more and casually like meet people in the blockchain space, I think MIT, they have just a general like session that they they put on every Wednesday, I think. But they do tons of free events in the Boston area, which are which are really great. I'd highly recommend going and checking them out if you're ever in the area. Yeah. Amazing things being built over there. Yeah. And there are more problems, right? The outside of just some of these like centralized databases that that uh, companies are trying to to solve in this space, right? Yeah, so one additional issue that people are poking at is the process of sharing data 
to improve clinical trials. Mm. So this sounds very dry, but it's actually fairly important. According to a Forbes article written by Renita Das, the SVP of Healthcare and Life Sciences at Frost and Sullivan, around 50% of clinical trials go unreported, meaning that the results are not shared and their value is lost. I can't think of a better way to spend money. <laughs> like, <laughs> what the hell? It, it, it's unreal. I think this was actually a piece that we talked about a lot between ourselves, I think back in January. And the big thing here with, we talk about a centralized database for patients, right? But like being able to share data, whether it's on clinical trials or on studies around different diseases, cures, etc. You think of like, what, the one of the most well-funded or at least well-covered right now is like cancer, right? And being able mm -hmm. to share and distribute data in a safe way that's cryptographically signed, can be shared across borders between anyone. I mean, blockchain technology seems like it's... It's perfect for doing stuff like this, right? Yeah, it could theoretically be used to exchange this data easily and safely between all medical institutions. So who's poking at this? First, companies like Health Linkages now provide a vast database of time-stamped and encrypted research data. Yeah. Uh, so one central place that you can go to find this data. Blockchain Health is aiming to provide medical researchers with easier access to patients. So in order to enable this, the platform actually provides an infrastructure for users to authorize and track the use of their personal health data for research purposes. Very interesting. Yeah, I find that particularly cool. It kind of almost sounds like I'm kind of obsessed myself with uh, like personal data tracking. I know it's like a terrible thing to do because we're just giving Apple and everyone else like in Facebook all of this data. And it's just like such a, a is a semi worry for me. But I also really love to have tons of data on my like self from that I store within like iPhone, whenever I go for like a physical or whatever, a checkup at the doctors, I'll record all of like my vitals and stick them into my phone. Like if you can enable stuff like this in a much more secure, decentralized way that can also be with an opt-in, like be used for research purposes. That's like amazing crowdsourced information en masse without the kind of costs involved in running these researches, which more often than not, unfortunately, then ends up requiring a third party to help fund research. And lo and behold, those companies that fund the research have a vested interest in the results of the research, yeah. right? And I think this is a good thing that, that helps kind of get rid of some of that and avoids a bias occurring, or at least just enables anyone and everyone to conduct research in a space. Yeah. I think that in general, one of the very interesting possibilities that we've discussed throughout the course of this podcast is personal data ownership. Mm. And that's why that word rescind really stood out to me when, when we were talking about 
medical records yeah. and MedRec, that MIT Media Lab project, the idea that you could have control over your identity and what identity means could sort of take different forms in different contexts, right? Right now we're talking about medical records. Identity could mean something completely and entirely different in the case of banking or even say social media mm -hmm. uh, or marketing, right? Yeah. And even like government ID level, right? Yes, absolutely. And so the idea of having control over your identity and being able to dictate when that is made available and when it's not, and perhaps even receive some form of incentivization mm. for making it available, almost like cutting you into that data mining equation, for yeah. <laughs> lack of a better phrase. I think it's very compelling. You could imagine a world where you have all kinds of micro incomes, perhaps mm -hmm. could be the term for something like this, where on the one hand, you're helping provide information on your own health for medical research, and perhaps you're being paid for that, or you're, you're receiving some other form of incentive or benefit. And then on the other side of things, instead of just giving all of your information to Facebook, you could imagine a world where you have total control over your identity and you can rescind that identity at any time. But as long as it is accessible by Facebook and the people that are marketing on Facebook, you're getting a cut of whatever profits are being made there. I think it's, it's a very interesting area to explore. Yeah, absolutely. I think one of the things that I had that was a quote that stuck with me for quite a while that I've since used within a talk and just papped it off as my own wisdom as usual, uh, is that you are not the customer of Facebook, right? You are the product. And the reason for that is like Facebook's ad revenue, whenever it's making any ad revenue, it's through the sale of your data. Right. I, I agree with it or not. That's beside the point. I think what we're talking about here, though, is right, imagine that dynamic where the third party is removed. Like if researchers want to gather data for their clinical trial right now and they need participants, they would probably go through a third party. I, I don't know any of the names of companies in, in that space, but they would be people that ultimately bring people in to do medical research. That third party that organizes the, the audience and compiles that data together is going to get all the cut. With this, the researchers can go direct to the individual mm -hmm. and actually do something in a more passive way, right? It's just granting me access to uh, certain parts of data that I want to release. Super interesting. Yeah. And I think that kind of comes into the whole idea of like giving in the medical and healthcare sector, like giving patients sovereignty over their data, mm -hmm. yeah. which is another core piece between all of this. Yeah. And Matt, what you were describing there, it's a lot like an Amazon mechanical Turk mm. applied to different contexts, in this case being medical research, yeah. where you eliminate the middle man or middle entity that often takes the largest percentage 
of the money that that is sort of passed out in order to make a clinical trial happen. It's like working with an agency versus working with a freelancer, right? Exactly. And that's that's what I think is really interesting. And the other piece that comes into all of this is security. How many times do we talk about data breaches when you're storing all of your information? I, I mean, I'm a hypocrite. I've just literally talked about how I love to track all of my data within my iPhone, within the health app. I use like Under Armour's app. Like all of this data is just going into this giant centralized database that's like a honeypot for, for hackers. But here's an alarming stat from within the healthcare industry, right? We're not talking about... How far has Matt ran over the past few weeks? What's his email address and a few other things, right, that that could really, like, hurt me, but there's limits there. This stat, according to the Prognos Breach Barometer report, between 2015 and 2016, 140 million patients' records were breached. That's one in three Americans. Wow. In a single year. That is unfathomable in my mind. That is the the most deeply like intimate records that you could possibly have captured from you. And actually yeah. information that really could be used to, to in a very malicious way, right? Yeah, absolutely. That makes me think of the Aquifax breach and how much outrage there was over that. Yes. And the the Yahoo email address breach oh and God. how much yeah. outrage there was over that. And it's like now we're talking about medical records and we're saying one in three Americans will have their records breached. That's insane. Yeah. I, I, I can't remember if we talked about this on the podcast previously or not, but one of my favorite like data breach stories was back in the days of uh, Hotmail. And I think this was just after Microsoft purchased Hotmail in the late 90s. I th- I'm going to I'm going to throw out a guess here. And I think it was 1999. And there was a security flaw that happened at the time, the biggest ever, that it impacted Mm -hmm. every single Hotmail account. And it meant that simply you could access anyone's Hotmail account by simply typing the password A. (laughs) (laughs) As in E-Y, I believe it was. Or something along those lines. It was a single word. But I... (laughs) That is, that blew my mind. It's like my favorite security breach story of all time. Uh, we'll share yeah. this out in the uh, in the show notes that we'll we'll publish along with every every platform that we've mentioned here. Yeah, we've got one more platform to go through here. Yeah. So Mint Health has is already actually working in this space of giving patients sovereignty over their data. They've already launched a decentralized health record platform which aims to give control of personal data back to the patients. Specifically, patients using Mint Health can access their cryptographically secured health records in real time using a mobile or web app. Mm. They also have the ability to give or rescind permission (laughs) to healthcare providers wanting access to their data. So there's already people working in this space making this stuff happen. Yeah, I think it's going to be interesting to see First of all, how well these projects actually do in terms of 
really making a mark on the space. I think there's a lot of projects out there. It's a tough space to operate within that, that ultimately costs a lot to enter. I, yeah. I wish a lot of them all the best. I'm excited as well to see what else comes up because I think from everything that we've mentioned here, this is clearly a problem that could benefit the world at a very grand scale, not just the US, but every other healthcare system in the world by solving some of this. Yeah. So that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Uh, one last call out. It would be a huge help to us if you could, one, subscribe if you haven't already to the podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Two, leave us a review if it's not too much. And three, share this out, this episode in particular, to any one of your friends, your family, share it on Twitter, WhatsApp, Facebook Messenger, WeChat, whatever you use, every share would really, really help us out. And until next time, we hope that you enjoy this episode. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and want to show your appreciation to myself and Matt, make sure you subscribe and leave us a review on the CastBox app or your favorite podcasting platform. We'd really appreciate that. And if you haven't already, you can download the free CastBox app where you'll find us as one of the CastBox original shows. You can also visit thecoinoffering.com to learn more about cryptocurrencies, get caught up on some news, see how your currency is performing, and you can follow us on Twitter at The Coin Offering. Finally, you can ask us any questions you have by emailing us at podcast at thecoinoffering.com. The Decrypting Crypto Podcast is a Castbox original show, and its contents should not be used and are not intended as investment advice. Please do your own due diligence before making any investment, cryptocurrency or otherwise.